Thank you, Bob Dylan, for letting us use this song. I spoke to Bob Dylan on the phone this morning, and he was like, yeah, man, go ahead, use it. He's like, fuck, fuck the man. He said, wait a minute, I just watched your videos. You are the man. <laughs> All right, guys, here it is, Friday, going there with Greg. And here I am, your host of this lovely show, this moment of madness, moment of mutual madness. Greg Medford, how are you? It's Friday. <coughs> you know, I've been so busy thinking about what I wanted to talk about, I did not set us up to be cranking. So I'm putting us on right now so that I can see comments from you rascallions. We're out there, critics, friend and foe alike. Hey, I want to talk about a couple things we're going to cover today. We are going to go through and rip it. I'm going to talk about a friend of mine who just recently passed away. Uh, talk to you a little bit about him. Drop his name out there and leave a little ripple in the pond. He's been, he was out there for eighty some years, seventies. I don't know. He was he was he was old. He was long in the tooth, and uh, he made his mark. I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to talk about the power behind the power in the current White House. We're going to talk about the current state of play on things ranging from inflation, energy prices, bare shelves, Christmas without China, southern border, and we're going to end with a lovely uh, high note today. We're going to talk about life's hidden blessings. In the midst of, in the midst of this leadership vacuum, um, um, feckless action in Washington, D.C., um, we're going to gaze the all-seeing eye of Sauron back to ourselves and talk just a moment about the blessing of the calamity our leadership has put us in. So let's kick it off. I want to talk about my friend Tom McGinnis. Tom was a knife maker. He had a company uh, uh, up in uh, Ozark, Missouri called Ozark Knife Makers. He taught a lot of people how to make knives, a lot of hobbyists. I know a lot of pros have been through his shop over the years. And uh, he is the guy that kind of showed me how to make knives. We lost him about two weeks ago. I just found out from a mutual friend yesterday. Uh, I guess it was today. And I've honestly, I've lost so many people that meant a lot to me professionally in the last, just in the last couple of years. It's been, uh, you know, kind of wild. Uh, almost all of my business mentors have died. And they all did really well, but almost all of them have died. Uh, I got some great examples. Uh, um, you know, I'm not going to say I was buddies with Mike Dillon, but we were acquaintances, and I definitely looked up to him, and I had socialized him from Dillon Arrow and Dillon Precision, Dillon Press, making the reloading and uh, making the minigun for the military. I had watched his company. I'd been through his company. I had uh, had... I had eaten with him, and I actually flew a private air show for him uh, on his, I think it was his 70th birthday. Lost him, um, you know, a few years back, and uh, it wasn't like this grievous loss, or it wasn't as impactful as it was for the people close to him. I would not say that, but it, uh, you know, it impacted me psychically, and then I lost my friend Joe Moriarty, which did impact me a lot more. Uh, Joe uh, was the founder and head of Total Seal Piston Rings and was just a prince of a guy, and uh, he was a rare character. He was awesome. I loved the guy and just had the best outlook on life. I lost my Uncle John during COVID, which was 
really sad. I got to spend a little time with him before he passed, and then we couldn't even have a funeral because he uh, lived up in the People's Republic of Massachusetts, and uh, we couldn't do anything for him. So uh, the family put him in the ground uh, as soon as they could, and it was it was done without fanfare, which is a damn shame because he was a big guy and everybody knew him, and he had a colossal reach. Uh, I lost, uh, well, the whole community... I lost a friend and the whole community lost uh, Frank DeSoma from POF, which happened, uh, I don't know if that was during COVID or just before COVID, but, uh, you know, he flipped his old Jeep because of somebody pulling a U-turn in front of him up on Carefree Highway, and uh, we lost him, and he was a good friend of mine, and we used to have lunch, and he was a, um, you know, he... I remember one time he and I went to have lunch. Uh, he called me up and he says, hey, Greg, uh, you know, go go have lunch with me. With uh, We're going to go have lunch with Joe Arpaio and this lady wants to be governor. And we did. We went and sat and had lunch, the two of us, at Pizzeria Bianco in downtown Phoenix with Christine something or other from GoDaddy who wanted to be a carpetbagger governor of Arizona and Joe Arpaio. And the four of us sat down. It was something. It was Joe Arpaio, me, Frank, and this gal, Christine, and her husband kind of sitting down at the end of the table, I guess, making sure we were, I don't know, whatever. Uh, and, you know, we kind of listened to their pitch, and I dropped the hammer. And when I dropped the hammer, I mean, as Frank and I walked away from the lunch, he's like, that's why I brought you, Greg. That was awesome. He goes, I wouldn't have said it like that. I can't believe you said that. And uh, she didn't get to be governor. Then... Um, and then recently, uh, I lost somebody that I really looked up to when I got started in business and went through a kind of strange, almost like role reversal because he was really, you know, he's really looking at what I was doing and, you know, he loved my energy and he supported all the things that I was into, all the social things and political things. And uh, I, I organized the big George Washington party every year in February and he always supported that and brought friends and family and was just, uh, he was very, very gracious with me. Uh, Kelly McMillan from McMillan Stocks. I know uh, so many of you who like rifles and stocks loved the McMillan products. And then um, we lost him just out of the blue. I mean, I went out to lunch with him. Uh, we just lost him a couple few months ago and you know, he's one of those guys who's got uh, a various strata of people close to him, and uh, he's got some people though he had kind of tumultuous history with, and uh, and and just almost like a war casualty, out of nowhere gone. You know, it wasn't like a long, slow decline. It wasn't like we saw it coming. It was just he was making plans. He and I were talking about organizing some trips to Africa to do. Uh, Photographic safari stuff. Uh, we were going to go up the uh, the Nile in Egypt on one of the uh, ancient flatboat cruises. <laughs> we just talked about it all, and then like two weeks later, uh, I I heard that he, you know, his his son and I are actually pretty close friends, and I think we're pretty close friends. And Ryan was kind of keeping me posted, and then I heard his dad passed. Without any fanfare, you know, without any fanfare for Frank either. And uh, these were guys that when I had no business, I really looked up to. And then after I was in business, they were looking at me because I was young and aggressive and growth oriented and doing creative things. And when you've been in business for a while, it's easy to fall back into your safe space. 
And when you find people who've got that vibrant energy and they're doing creative things and they're still being bold and they're still taking chances, you have a tendency to want to flock towards them and uh, taste a little of their success, see what they're up to and see if some of it bleeds over into what you're up to. I know his son, uh, Ryan's really entrepreneurial. Uh, he's the president founder of uh, Graybo Stocks. He's doing compression mold uh, stocks, a little high-tech He's got a high-tech take on what his dad never got out of, which was old-fashioned hand-laid-up, huge labor, uh, synthetic stocks. Uh, and, and Ryan's doing some really cool stuff. We're going to do some collaborative things with him this year. So we lost Ryan's dad. And, uh, you know, I told Ryan, I said, now listen, man, I go, whatever you miss talking about with your dad, uh, we're going to talk about him over the next 20 years while we have lunch together once every couple of weeks. So we do. When I heard about Tom McGinnis today, I thought it was worth mentioning some of my friends. And I went through my phone, and the first one I came to, I go through every couple of years and clear out the dead. And one that I haven't been able to get rid of is Chris Kyle. I had him in my phone. I would never pretend to say that we're close friends or anything like that. I met him in Virginia Beach. Um, I was uh, doing a knife demonstration, and I brought some knives, and he ended up being in the group. I ended up going to a very... Uh, Naval Special Warfare kind of closed trade show, and uh, Chris was there, and he ended up just sitting in my booth. We, uh, I, I basically went and I kind of stole a keg from the uh, catering area, rolled it into my booth, and he and I sat and emptied out a keg with a couple of guys. It was the first time I'd met him, and I spent some time, and he told a bunch of stories, and by the time we were a good way into that keg, you know, everybody was into their own bullshit. He had a little clack of dudes around him, you know. His book was out. I was reading his manuscript. He handed it to me, and before the movie came out, I was reading the manuscript and kind of back and forth and asking about sections, and he basically relayed most of the anecdotes from the book to me while we sat there drinking. And then, actually, he cried. And I remember, you know, it was kind of off to the side, and we were talking, and you know, he had said how he loved Marines and his brother was a Marine and all this kind of stuff. And a bunch of emotions came up. And I didn't under, I didn't really, I'm not really a star fucker. So it didn't, you know, the movie hadn't been out. The book hadn't been out. He was just another SEAL. It didn't matter to me. He was just another guy, a kind of brother in arms. And I listened to him talk and I could tell he had, you know, seen a bunch of traumatic things that dented his soul. And we were talking about it. And then... We had a good time, and then uh, and then he came and saw me at my booth uh, in Las Vegas at Shot Show the next year, and we ended up going to the V Bar at the Venetian, and a bunch of us all hanging out drinking, and he ended up getting all emotional with me that time too. I think it's because I'm such a serious guy. And then the third time, and then, and then our paths crossed numerous times throughout those couple of years. And then the third year, you know, the movie had been out, and uh, he was all Mr. Big Time, and he was exactly the same. He showed up. He was trying to deal with everybody, basically trying to blow him for his stardom, his fame, his notoriety. And... You know, I think when he walked up or something, I was like, hey, homo, what are you doing? I think I can't go anywhere without seeing your gay face. I said something like that. <laughs> and he had a laugh and he came up and he kind of punched me and 
you know, we big handshake and and then we were out drinking again that night and some stuff happened and um I think there was a gold star mom there that he he kind of got cornered by and then and then we went he and I at you know at the V bar you have to go outside into the casino to go to the restroom and he and I went out to see a man about a horse and uh two different horses and as we uh as we started walking down the hallway, he started talking, and he was really heavily emotional. And then the next week, he was gone. <laughs> we were talking about all kinds of stuff, things we were going to do, and, you know, I had talked to him about stuff, you know, asked him if there was anything I could do for him, and and then uh, and then... All of this stuff, it kind of quietly just floats around in the background. And then I was on the phone with uh, Burt King today, and I was talking to Burt King about one of our grinders. I need a new variable frequency drive for it. And the guy who answered the phone's a friend. And uh, he, he said, hey, by the way, he said, I don't know if you heard, but, but, but Tom died. And I said, oh. So... I'll tell you my story about Tom McGinnis, and then we're going to jump into politics for the day, okay? Let me get a sip on this Friday with three of you out there watching me. Hello, everybody. So, if you've never heard the story of how I got into knife making, this shirt kind of will tell the story. This shirt, it says, Oblige with this big knife. This is the knife, and I didn't plan this. It's serendipitous. This knife got me, the knife on my shirt and this phrase got me in the knife business. People say, what got you in the knife business? I can tell you the moment it happened. I can tell you exactly when it happened. I know exactly what I was doing. I was watching one of my favorite movies. I was watching Glorious Bastards. And Brad Pitt said, you know, I get to Carnegie Hall, practice, practice, practice. And he had that big buoy and he was carving a swastika in the Nazi's forehead. And that knife, that moment, captured my attention. I wanted to buy one of those knives. I started searching around. I figured it would be something easily available, like the old Rambo knife with the survival kit and the handle. And as I found out, it wasn't easily available. It wasn't just floating around. I didn't know who made it. And the deeper and deeper I dove, and the more and more I looked to find one, within a week, I figured out knives cost $1,000. And I was at an inflection point in my life. What am I going to do? And it was time for a decade renewal of Greg. I'd been teaching martial arts. I'd been fighting for about 25 years. I'd been teaching guys how to fight and the science of motion. And I'd been flying air shows for about six years at the time, maybe, maybe seven years. And all of it crashed in 2008, 2009. I started running out of money in 2009. I was about to make, I had made my very last payment. I had made my very last payment. I wasn't going to make my mortgage payment on my house the next month. I wasn't going to make the payment on Amy's car. I didn't know how I was going to pay for food. My credit cards were maxed out. I was in the martial arts business. I had a few schools. Amy and I ran them. And uh, we had managed all of our savings had dwindled. And we had gotten to the... We'd gotten to the point where we didn't have any options. And I watched the movie. And as often happens with people 
there's just a lark. There's a serendipity. There's a little thing that captures your attention, your creativity. And I said, well, if those knives go for a thousand bucks, I'm going to start making knives because I can make anything. So I did a Google search for grinders. I watched a 10 minute little video on the process of knife making. I bought a grinder from Burke King. They said, Hey, uh, there's this guy named Tom McGinnis up in Ozark. You can go up to this place. He's got a little knife making school, kind of four car garage, metal building. You can go up there and learn how to make knives. I bought a machine that day. I rented a building the next day. Two days later, I flew out for Springfield, Missouri. I remember when I got there, he had his pickup truck parked up in front of the airport. He said, yeah, just go up there. The truck's waiting for you. Just left the truck up there. I got in the truck, started driving. I was like, couldn't you believe it? The truck's just sitting open, keys on the, on the mat. I hop in the truck. I drive up to his place. I get to his house. I park the truck. I think it was an F-150, old Ford F-150 or F-100. I think it was a Ford. I, I don't remember. And I knock on the front door, and his wife answers and says, oh, Tom's out back there in the shop. I walk around to the shop, and uh, I knock on the door, no answer. I go around the side, no answer. I go around to the back, and as I come around the back, the back door is open. And as I go to walk in, a big overhead door that's open, a tomahawk, tomahawk goes flying by and, and sticks into a, they think they had the end of a stump there. And I was like, I kind of like, hey, I got took my hat off. I kind of waved, hey, peace for a minute. No more tomahawks. I poke my head around the corner. I go in there, and there's Tom. Tom's, you know, deep fried food for lunch. He was a heavy set guy, and he's in there, and there's a forge going, and there's anvils and power hammers. And I just stepped back in time like a kid. You know, I was beside myself. So he comes in, and. We we start we talk for a few minutes and then he says, "Oh, well, let me show you a little thing about grind." And he gave me a little one hour talk in his little classroom off to the side of his shop. Drew some pictures on the board and he handed me this twenty page pamphlet. And he said, "Well, you know, let's go out and start grinding." So we went out and I got on a grinder. I was I hadn't been grinding fifteen minutes and he walked around. And he goes, you know, Greg, what, what do you want to do with this? And I said, well, Tom, I said, I said, I want to be the biggest, you know, I want to be the biggest cool knife making company in America. And he laughed at me. And he said, uh, he said, well, you know, just, you know, enjoy making. And then I took the knife out and I, we, 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 uh, he treated it and quenched it, hardened it, draw it. We did a draw on it. I wrapped the handle on it, and they all just looked at me like I was nuts. You know, I was putting paracord handle on it. They were doing bone handle and you know, kind of old fashioned stuff. He said, "He said, well, you're you're a knife maker. <laughs> There's no question about it." He said, "You're you're you're definitely a knife maker, Greg." He says, "You, I can't really see anymore. Would you mind grinding on this samurai sword for me?" And he brings out the samurai sword, and he has me grind on the tip of it. <laughs> we ground for about a half a day, and then. He says, what do you want to do? And I said, well, let's make, you know, let's do Damascus and do forge welding and make tomahawks. So we helped make a bunch of tomahawk blanks for a Boy Scout troop that he was doing volunteer work. And over the years, um, this the memorial part of the show. It will get a little more political towards the second half of the show. So just bear with me if you want to hear about the state of play from my perspective. Over the years, Tom and I became more and more friends and as he started started to see my company evolve he started reaching out and offering words of encouragement 
And if I ever asked him for advice, he never had any advice for me. He said, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're doing stuff. But, you know, I, I, I can't really help with that. But, you know, if you want to make a, a tomahawk, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to help you. And then he had asked me to come up and teach a class on knife design. In that class are several makers that you guys know the name of. Uh, the names of was up at the uh, Burke King factory. They gave us an area there, a big kind of classroom. And I taught a class on theoretical knife design. And uh, I don't know, I think there were 20 or 25 people in the class. And those guys always come up to see me and I see pictures of their knives flowing around the internet. It tickles me to no end. But Tom was so gracious to me. He had been giving to so many people and was giving, you know, he had given to me, he had given of his time and his knowledge. He wasn't just being a hillbilly uh, locked up in his garage doing his own thing, making knives for his own life. He had just spent his life sharing his knowledge. And, it, um, you know, he had a body of knowledge this big and I got a body of knowledge that big from him and took off and did my own thing. And he was so proud of me. He treated me like a son gone good. You know, he uh, every time we were in company together, he always just, you know, Greg came to my shop. He said, I want to be the biggest, best knife maker in the world. And I just about think he is. I mean, he would just say the nicest things. He was so gracious. And we lost him. And he lost his wife recently, and then he passed. And when I heard about that, I was really sad. And uh, the thing about it is what we do in life matters. And the reverberations and the echoes of our actions ripple into the future. And he cast a lot of little stones out in the pond with all the different people he trained over the years and taught his understanding of knife making and fostered the love of knife making and cutlery appreciation in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. So we lost a big one uh, with Tom McGinnis at Ozark Knife Makers. Now you guys may not know of him. He wasn't a big old famous, uh, he wasn't a self-promoter, he wasn't a he wasn't a big shaker and mover in the industry, but he did some of the most beautiful frontier style um, uh, mosaic Damascus. He made his own Damascus. He did his own grind. He's just a really awesome character and a uh, talented, talented knife maker. And uh, that's a big loss to the knife community. Tom McGinnis. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about the state of play. So right now, who's running the United States of America? There's all sorts of hyperbole out there, but typically the, chief, the uh, United States president's chief of staff is one of the most powerful people in the world because the chief of staff is really, you know, he's the, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, he's the hand of the king. The uh, chief of staff is implementing, uh, uh, projecting power from the White House into the legislative branch. He's projecting opinion and, and, and influence towards the let the. Um, uh, judicial branch. Um, he is setting the stage for the president's use of the bully pulpit. He is oftentimes helping craft the narrative and the agenda internationally uh, and in defense and in the economy. So really, co quite frankly, probably, you know, short of the president, the most influential person on planet Earth because they have so much access, so much influence, so much sway and can basically table and block so much from happening. So does anybody know who the chief of staff is? I mean, I know who he is, but do any of you know who he is? His name's Ron Klain. Ron is a lifelong Democrat. He is born of the Clinton, Bill Clinton 
Nest. He uh, was the uh, czar for Ebola for the Obama administration. And he's the current chief of staff for our ding-dong-in-chief, Joe the Huckster Biden. Joe, otherwise known as Ching Tao Biden. So the person running the country is normally the president, and they have to be in kind of a constant battle or push with their chief of staff of what they want to do and what they can do. And we currently have a chief of staff who has a, honestly, and look, all, all distaste for Joe Biden and everything he stands for as one of the worst swamp denizens of the modern political era, all disgust I have for him aside, I feel sorry that these power-hungry sons of bitches who care more about power than our nation, they, came, they care more about winning than being right. They, came, they care more about emotions than facts. They care more about theory and philosophy than common sense, application, and outcomes. They put this guy up. He is not in charge. He cannot exert himself. He can't exert himself on a, in a prepared speech, let alone, let alone an impromptu conversation. Can you see Joe Biden? He can barely handle himself at the podium. Can you see him sitting in a room of six or eight people at the White House, hammering over options on how to deal with Taiwan, hammering over three or four career bureaucrat uh, dick-sucking generals? who say one thing and mean the other because they're really just trying to protect themselves and make it to the next administration. Can you see him holding his own with them and a bunch of power-hungry leftists on the other side of the room and a president in the middle trying to hold together? Can you see him rolling with the conversation, the nuance of vocabulary, the quickness of speech, the oral and auditory skill set that's required to hang in a group of high-level professionals battling over nuance of policy. Can you literally see that old man doing it? Do you think he's doing it? <laughs> Let's go, Brandon. The power behind power is Ron Klein. Ron Klein is a Clinton, born of the Clinton era. He's a dyed-in-the-wool Obama operative. He is in the White House. He and Jill are running the United States, neither of whom were elected, both with zero accountability. That's the power behind the power, folks. You want to know who's screwing up in Afghanistan? It's Ron Klein. Klein. Ron Klein. If you want to know who's screwing up the economy, it's Ron Klein. If you want to know who's screwing up logistics and supply around this country, it's Ron Klein. If you want to know who's tanking the United States with an hard-to-fathom border policy, it's Ron Klein. If you want to know whose idea it was, who the sharp attorney was who's at the helm of power with one hand on it, maybe both, who approved the president getting on the air and coercing companies to coerce employees to make medical choices or lose their livelihoods, who threatened families and livelihoods of Americans that they better get in compliance, who spent less time educating themselves on the facts and realities of the current 
landscape in America and more time propagandizing, coercing, and threatening Americans' livelihoods. If you want to know who the same person is who's driving that ship, it's Ron Klain and Jill Biden. And it's Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer who can walk in the White House anytime, take their hand out. She can take her rings off. Schumer can roll up his sleeve, a Democrat from Wall Street's hip pocket, and take that hand with the no rings on it and no sleeve, take their fingers and put it together like this, put it right up the ass of the American president, twist it into his skull, put his thumb into his jaw, and start talking. That's who's running our country, folks. It's not the vice president. They're keeping that stiff-armed, dumbass bitch away from the White House as best they can. Did I just call her a dumbass bitch? That wasn't nice of me. I'm sorry. I got caught up in hyperbole. They're keeping that racially confused, plasticine, phony, shrill, laughing, cackling, unpopular, disliked, awful cocksucker away from the White House as much as they can. She actually blew Willie Brown to get her first big gig. So she could kiss my ass. That's the best they got. That's who's running the country. If you want to know who's doing all that, it's Ron Klain, Jill Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer. You think Ron ever talks to the Obamas? I mean... Once you're not in the White House, do you think you want to call people up and tell them what to do? I don't know, unless you get into credit. Unless I mean, I doubt it. Let's talk about inflation. We have the worst inflation since Jimmy Carter. With no end in sight. We have the worst energy prices. The fastest increase in energy prices in modern times, and there's no end in sight. We have bare shel- shelves across the maybe one of the wealthiest two countries on planet Earth. We're going to have a Christmas without goods in many of the big box retailers around the country. Without a lot of goods. We're not going to be able to buy whatever we want this Christmas. We have an open southern border that is an absolute politically designed calamity. It's not a disaster. A disaster is a storm. You can't help it. A disaster is a turn of events outside of your your reach. But when you fuck it up so bad it turns into a disaster, that's a calamity. What are we going to do? I'll tell you what's going to happen. In the next couple of months after Christmas, the house is going to turn its gaze towards re-election. They will have a harder and harder time getting anything done, why is what, why they're, which is why there's such a big press going on right now to get their $3.5 trillion, only 9% of which was for infrastructure, quote-unquote infrastructure bill, put through the House and advanced to the Senate. We've got senators. We've got our bisexual, lesbian, uh, Kristen Sinema Democrat from Arizona basically saying she's not going to go for it, and Joe Manchin saying he's not going to go for it from West Virginia. So they're acting like they have a mandate from the people, but they have a 50-50 split. 
with uh, Camel Toe Harris being the only one who can actually break a tie. The thing about a tie is you're not that strong, and you only need one person's local interest, the one, one senator's state interest, to run in contretemps to your mission, and the whole thing falls apart. And they got two of them right now. Now, cinema, she's not objecting on moral grounds. She's not objecting on capitalist grounds. She's not objecting on fiscal responsibility grounds. She's objecting on the grounds that she is a soulless fuck who wants to be in office on the next cycle. That's it. It's just cold, power hungry. She doesn't want to be a, it's her way to be a TV star. Maybe she can get more girls. (laughs) I don't know. It's not because she's smart or she's a rogue independent or anything like that. It's because the people of Arizona will bounce her ass. We're not really a purple state. We really are still a Republican state. We've just had a couple of very bad candidates that our dumb local politicians have continued to run and have, and have created a vacuum where there's no good candidate uh, capability to step into the, into the breach. You know, Cinema beat a bad candidate. McSally was a bad candidate. She just didn't come off well. Right pedigree on paper, wrong candidate and on camera. And then uh, when our other uh, senator stepped aside, Governor Douchey decided he would uh, appoint the losing Republican who didn't make it against Cinema and put her into position to uh, run an incumbency campaign in a Mark, against Mark Kelly. Um, she's still actually since she'd never actually won a campaign, she was still a bad campaigner, and she lost to Mark Kelly. A guy that comes off as disingenuous, carpet-bagging, not a local, and a dude people don't generally like, and he won. She ran a Washington campaign here in Arizona and got her teeth kicked in. So the whole thing's ground to a halt. I don't know if anybody listened to Joe Biden talk on the uh, television today giving his state of things address. He was garbled. He was stammering. He was barely coherent. If you listened to him and he was your own grandfather, you would feel terrible for him. You would want to rescue him. You would want to walk up and pull him away from the microphone. And he's the leader of the free world. He's cutting deals, selling nuclear subs to our allies, undercutting our allies, and doesn't even know it. You know, all the left ever says when a Republican gets elected is how the Europeans aren't going to like it. They're not going to like a Republican. You know, We need our allies. We need this. We need that. We really don't. But let's say we want to be loyal to our allies. <laughs> I, in my lifetime, don't know anything Republicans have done to alienate our allies as much as undercutting major deals with their allies with our military sales. Now, in the end, it might have been the right thing to do, but the way it was executed was wrong. For example, you decide that you want to poke China in the eye and put Western nuclear-powered submarines in their backyard with Australia. I get it. It's a good move. You know it's going to cause some problems because you've got political operatives around you and 
I'm Greg and I would say, hey, when we do this, who are we going to piss off? And and then some some politico egghead policy wonks would say, well, it's going to mess up this deal. It's going to mess up that. And then what you do is you could go to them and you assuage them so that it doesn't blow up in your face. And then once you've got them queued up, you go make your deal. And now your deal can be done clean without any boomerang baggage. Just seems like deal making 101. They don't know to do that. Very much like getting out of Afghanistan was probably the right thing to do. The majority of, even if you disagree with it, the vast majority of Americans wanted us out of there. So what do you do? Do you not tell your allies and just pull out? You just created calamity, an unnecessary calamity? No. There's an orderly way to do it. And I could run through an eight-point plan that would have made Afghanistan an easy rollout and not left it a hotbed for terrorists like it is right now. Mark my words. If you voted for Biden, your son, your friend's son, your friends and your family's children will go to war because of your weakness, because of your silly judgment of a guy you didn't like. They will go to war. It will be in an Ann or a Stan or a Wan, like Afghanistan, like Iran, like Taiwan. Okay, let's move on. I want to talk about some hidden blessings. And we're going to do this with the general observation first. Why would you ever be a Democrat 101? Here are four reasons. One, you are jealous. You're jealous of people with more money. You're jealous of the upper class. You're jealous of people who succeed and exceed your capabilities. You're jealous. So generally, kind of a class warfare. Two, lazy. You smoke your brown cigarettes. You smoke whatever you smoke. You sit at your coffee houses with your effeminate legs crossed, drinking your um, $5 cup of coffee, reading Jack Kerouac, thinking you're relevant, hiding behind laziness and fear of failure, failing to succeed or thrive, the greatest country that's ever existed in all human time. And you're lazy. And you critique from the side and you're lazy. And you don't even reach because you're a nihilist and you're lazy. Third reason, you're embarrassed. You made so much goddamn money doing your job and you haven't emotionally been able to deal with the inequity of life. You haven't been able to deal with the fact that in all societies, there are those who uh, uh, thrive and are far more comfortable and those who are poor and are not comfortable. I'm not here to have a judgment about that. Every society that's ever existed has dirt poor and filthy rich. They just call them different names and they hide the money differently, but they have the same. We've spent over a trillion dollars since the Johnson administration battling poverty. It, it's only changed like 1%. It's only changed 1% in 70 years. Poverty is almost unchanged. Billions, hundreds, and hundreds of billions of dollars spent battling poverty, and it hasn't changed. I'm not saying it's natural to be poor. I'm not saying there's anything good about being poor. 
I'm saying that every society you ever read about that actually existed, other than utopic ideas in fanciful novels and fanciful thought pieces, every society has had dirt poor and filthy rich. Every one of them has had prostitutes. Every one of them has had people at the top who have more than everyone else. Every, it doesn't matter what form of society is, what's, what the structure is, where it falls on this scale or that scale. People who haven't been able to come to terms with the disparity between the top and the bottom end up in the top and feel guilty. Now, you don't see them give away all their fucking money and go back to being down in the, in the unwashed masses. You don't see these liberals in Hollywood giving away all their money. You're still seeing them flying around in jets. They're still going to ride around in boats. They're still going to do their thing. And their consciences are riddled and guilty because they haven't figured it out. You know what happens when you make $100 million in Hollywood? You said, you know what? I really got this job because I'm pretty and I can kind of memorize other people's words and I can fake being real really well. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's an awesome skill. The telling of the human story, the human condition is a powerful thing. And they get well compensated because there's a lot of money flowing around. I actually don't have a problem with it. I have no problem with it, but they do. What do you do if you dropped out of high school and you lived in a trailer and you work your way out to L.A. and hustle around there? Maybe you suck a couple of cocks on Hollywood Boulevard and make it into an acting class. (laughs) What do you do when you finally make it? You whore yourself around, you hit the casting couch six or eight or 25 times, you finally make it, you get a commercial, you get a pilot, you get a sitcom, you get a movie, you're great looking, you knew you were going to make it, and you finally make it. One, you have no idea what to do with all that money, but spend it in a lavish way. Two, the hardest part about holding on to a million dollars, the hardest part of a million dollars after you've gotten it is holding on to it. And there are very few people who haven't earned a million dollars who can actually hold on to it. They get there and they feel guilty. Guess what happens when our youngest and brightest end up out in Silicon Valley? They hustle an A round, a B round, a C round of funding, launch a dot-com or a tech company that goes public and they make a ridiculous, insane amount of money. How many of them, when they pull off that Go out and start a car company and a rocket ship company. How many? We we know the answer. Three, four, five. Not all of them. The rest of them, they have big problems just like poor white trash people who win $100 million in the lottery. They have the same kind of problems, except they're riddled with guilt and arrogance. They don't give away all their money and go back to zero. They're the guilty parties. So we've got our our, uh, jealous, our lazy, embarrassed. These are the reasons to be a liberal, a Democrat. And then we have our virtue signalers. These are people, the guys who do it, I think they're trying to identify with their women so they can get laid. You know how many Democrat guys I talk to when you're out fishing or away from the ladies? You're out having, having a steak together, you hit the road on a hunting trip, or you're traveling together. They say all kinds of stuff, and you're like, dude, are you the same dude that was telling me <laughs> two weeks ago when we were sitting with they're, they're They're virtue Democrats. They think it's virtuous to be a Democrat. They think it's actually good. Why? Because their wife told them so. Their girlfriend told them so. 
The college professor told him so. There's a huge group, including the gay intelligentsia and the news media. They're telling them so. So you get a lot of people who kind of control the message, and they're telling them so. So unless you deep dive and are willing to do the work yourself, you, it must be so. Being a Republican is a cold, heartless, evil place to be. They're selfish. They don't want to pay taxes. They don't care about paying their fair share. They want all the money. It's all about business. They don't care about the environment. They don't care about the planet. Totally, 100% fucking wrong. So let's talk about life's hidden blessings. When the jealous, lazy, embarrassed, virtue signaling left gets a chance to lead, what we find is their ideas are wrongheaded. Their philosophies don't work. Their approach is silly. Their intelligence is uncoupled from experience. And when intelligence and education is uncoupled from experience and reason, what we get is not wisdom. We get madness. We get madness at the border. We get the chief of staff saying inflation is an upper class problem. Inflation. If you're in the upper class and gas goes up 100%, it doesn't really bother you. It just annoys you. If eggs double in price, it doesn't bother me. If milk doubles in price, I'm not worried about it. Folks that are in the upper income strata, they're not worried about not having stuff at Walmart. They're not worried about their gas costing more or their tires being 100% more. It's an inconvenience but it's regressive. They don't care. It's so far below their top line, it doesn't bother them much. Who it matters for, and, and so these are the people in the hall of power right now. These are the people steering the ship. They're driving policy, they're making the decisions, and they are flushing the toilet on our country. Now, we've got, they think we have a crisis right now. I want to put this in perspective, okay? They think we have a crisis right now, so the president went out to California to talk to the Longshoremen's Union and get them to speed up the ports and work 24 hours a day. I want to point out what we're doing. We're, we have bare shelves, and we're lacking Christmas presents because the elite ruling class in collusion with the upper business class has sold out and undermined labor and jobs in the United States and sold out under this kind of Keynesian Institute philosophy of let third world countries do the making and we'll do the thinking. And they've outsourced your job, your community, your main street. And they've outsourced it and bypassed your politics, your vote, your opinion on the work week, safety, the environment, clean air, clean water, the taxes, the liability, and the general rules of the game that we vote for and agree on here in America. They circumvent them by having it made in China where they don't give a fuck. And then they put it in boats and ship it back here and sell us their crap. They copy our brands. They copy my knives. They copy my friend's knives. I'm just a little ant down here in the world of commerce. And they copy my stuff. I was told by a guy he bought 5,000 copies of one of my knives. 5,000. 
It starts turning into real money, you guys. So their crisis right now is that the longshoremen aren't bringing in Chinese stuff to corporations who are the portals here in America to circumvent our way of life. So Costco, it is a way of circumventing our way of life. They have almost everything made in China. Everything made in China means none of that stuff was made under the rules of employment, under the rules of the environment, under the rules of human decency, and under the rules of free people engaging in commerce for a fair wage. You're buying stuff, call it another name if you like, made under the rules of slave labor. Absolutely. Costco. Walmart. All these big retailers, Sam's Club, of course, and all the big box retailers with their empty shelves. When you see the empty shelves this season, it's a message to you from Santa Claus, from God, from the idea of God, and from George Washington himself. Don't look around these establishments you shop, and if their shelves are empty, you're supporting China. And China is going to invade Taiwan because we show no leadership. We show no backbone. We, as Americans, we are lazy. As Americans, we're not hungry. As Americans, in the largesse of the generations before, we're arguing about what a male and what a female is, and the rest of the the rest of the world doesn't even think about that. While we're having that fight, they're literally taking our TV off the wall and loading it up in a truck out in the driveway, robbing the house of everything we've saved over the last 250 years. They're stealing us blind, and we're arguing about transgenders in the bathroom. Downright shocking, and we deserve. Everything we get if we don't wake up. Even if we don't wake up, we deserve everything we get. We deserve it. We need to wake up. If you shop in places where the shelves are empty, message to you, don't shop there. If your products are made in the United States that you buy, they will be more expensive. You'll buy less of them. When you buy less, Mother Earth has to give up less. When she gives up less, we take less. The world is better. It's cleaner. It's simpler. Surround yourself with fewer things this Christmas. Buy less junk this Christmas. Have nothing for your junk sale or your garage sale or your carport sale or your tag sale next year. That should be the goal of every purchase we make as Americans. I want to buy something that will never end up in a garage sale, in a tag sale. I want it to be thoughtful. I want it to be expensive. I want it to matter. I want to support my fellow Americans, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. The hidden blessing is if there's no Chinese stuff here to buy, we won't buy Chinese stuff by American. Now, I know a company you can buy a knife from. It'll make an amazing Christmas present. Medford Knife and Tool. Go to MedfordKnife.com. <laughs> I'll be a soulless pig. There are also other great American companies that I know that make knives like Benchmade. Spartan, Spyderco. There's a lot of companies. Chris Reeve, there's a lot of companies making great American knives. There's companies making American-made boots. Buy American-made boots this Christmas. Google and find out who's making American-made socks. Maybe you can't get American-made socks. 
Try to have this be the year of American made. Imagine how it would change the face of America if all of a sudden this year we didn't go through some big box placed with polished floors, picking prepackaged shit made in China, filling up baskets, emptying our wallets, charging up our credit cards, paying out exorbitant interest rates to credit companies to buy Chinese shit that's mostly knockoffs of American greatness to give stuff that's going to be forgotten and sold in a tag sale next year. Get off the train. Blue pill or red pill? Stop the madness. That's my advice to you. We have, through natural, through human calamity and some natural disaster, there's a silver lining to this cloud that's come over this country the last 18 months. It's about remembering what really matters. It's about getting thoughtful things. Carve something out of wood. Make something out of metal. Craft something out of stuff. You can still get raw materials everywhere. If you know somebody who's into horses, Borrow a welder from somebody and wire together a bunch of used horseshoes into something. If you know somebody who's a pilot, swing by an airport and ask anybody if they've got any old aviation junk and make them a little sculpture sculpture for their desk or their hangar. The most thoughtful gifts ever take some of you to make, to put together, to craft. Talk about a gift that will really make a difference in that people will be stunned what they've gotten from you, not what you spent on them. It is low class and it is born of a country that barely scraped itself up out of the dirt in the last hundred years. It is a low brow to go buy lots of stuff to make ourselves feel good at Christmas time. It's low brow. It's not, it's not upper middle class. It's not even middle class. It's low brow. He is a leftover ringing the toilet bowl of being hungry. Don't go out and be lavish and be ridiculous. Be awesome. Buy awesome. Buy the best. America can't compete on price, but we can compete on awesome. Buy awesome American. That's my message as we jump into the holidays. This Friday, here from the uh, here from the Shactory, from our studio in Phoenix, Arizona. Thanks, you guys, for stopping in and saying hello. Thanks for your two cents. Thanks for your comments. Let me oh, let me see if anybody, let me see if anybody's here. I could say hello to a couple of folks. It's kind of fun. Uh, people throwing me in for governor and president. I appreciate that. Um, thanks for stopping by. Oh yeah, okay, that's good, Jason. So great. Let's go, Brandon. Oh my God, that's funny. You know. Thanks for the comments, you guys. Thanks for stopping in. Thanks for staying alone. Thanks for being a part of me, uh, doing a little self-therapy when I hop on these little podcasts in the afternoon or the evenings, and I exercise some of these demons out of my soul and my brain so that I could kind of go home and have a little peace in my head as I get there. Thanks for stopping in for our uh, man cave chat. I guess it's the modern version of the fireside chat. It's our man cave chat. 